Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Freedom of Species, bringing animal advocacy to the airwaves. Uh, Today's presentation is by Jackie Rand. And Jackie is an emeritus professor at Queensland University, but she is also the founder of the Australian Pet Welfare Foundation. They're a not-for-profit. They're a peak body and advocate for pet welfare that provide evidence-based solutions within the community to save the lives of pets and people. Their primary activity, and I read from their website here, is influencing key stakeholders in government, welfare agencies, veterinary professionals and community leaders, achieved by sharing evidence-based information on best practice to save lives in shelters and pounds through changed policy and legislation. According to the Australian Pet Welfare Foundation website, 100,000 treatable and adoptable dogs and cats are killed every year in Australia, and some pounds kill 50% of dogs and 80 to 95% of cats. I hear a lot of you think out there, why should we care? Cats are responsible for killing all our wildlife, aren't they? Well, today's presentation is going to debunk a lot of assumptions we have around cats based on science. Jackie was speaking at the 7th National Getting to Zero Summit held on the Gold Coast in September 2017. Getting to Zero aims to increase responsibility for companion animals so that every community and municipality can achieve zero euthanasia of all healthy and treatable cats and dogs. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Emeritus Professor Jackie Rand is going to be talking about managing cats humanely and scientifically to reduce cats wildlife predation and costs. Without further ado, Emeritus Professor Jackie Rand. So I'm talking to you about managing cats scientifically and humanely 
to decrease cats and if you're a council employee, um, decrease your costs as well. And I'd just uh, I'd like to acknowledge both the Australian Pet Welfare Foundation and the University of Queensland um, as being collaborators in a lot of this data. So how big is the problem? So for a city of a million residents, and if you live in Brisbane, in uh, uh, Melbourne or Sydney, just multiply all these figures by about four. Based on uh, Ray Morgan research, there's about 150,000 owned cats in a city of a million, about 50 to 65,000 stray cats. How many enter shelters and pounds? Um, if we, we've done uh, Diana Chu and she's going to be presenting tomorrow, uh, we've looked at per state and it's about five to ten cats per thousand residents, depending on the state, enter shelters and pounds. Um, and if you look at uh, the number that are stray uh, compared to owner surrendered using pound data and RSPCA data, um, most pounds uh, data, most of their cats are, are stray and it's uh, about 50-50 for um, RSPCA. So 3,000 uh, 3, to 6,000 stray cats annually would enter um, the shelters and pounds and about 2,400 own cats. Based on um, uh, Diana Chu's data from across Australia, um, it was about 56% were killed. Um, in the Brisbane City Council area, if you add in the 1,000 um, in their feral cat program, um, it's about 35%. So they're doing better than average. And if you look at all the costs to um, take in a cat, care for it, um, hold it for the minimum holding period, and then either euthanise it or try and find a home for it, um, it averages out probably about $500 a cat, although a lot of councils are not paying um, this much. But in the end, it costs the community welfare agencies about that amount. So for a city of a million, um, uh, welfare agencies and the council together are going to be spending between about $2.5 million to $5 million a year um, managing cats. Stray cats are what I'm going to talk about, and where are they coming from? Well, you know, we've heard they're wandering owned cats. There's also lost owned cats, abandoned cats where people move house and leave the cat. Um, but in fact, semi-owned cats are by, by far the biggest group in this stray cat population in urban areas. And based on the data, um, we analysed the data from 191,000 cats coming into RSPCA between 2006 and 2010, and uh, Corinne Albertson did some work, and that was some that's been presented. Um, most are socialised to people that are coming into RSPCA shelters. Um, and remember, they do quite a bit of council work as well. Um, and only 10% on average were, base, were classed as feral, based on behaviour, and I've just been looking at some recent data and the percentage that's classed as feral is dropping over time. Um, I don't think it's because we're getting less socialised cats, but we've got more time and ability to deal with those that have got poorer, um, poorer socialisation or a shyer. So I'd just like to talk a little bit about the semi-owned cats because they are contributing... Um, a lot to our intake, into our pounds particularly, about 50% into our shelters. They contribute a lot to cat-related complaints as well, um, and that's what council uh, animal control officers deal with. So um, in a survey that Sarah Zito did for her PhD, um, we asked people surrendering a stray cat to the RSPCA. 
Um, and I, 56 had been provi- 56% had been providing care for more than a month. Um, and they brought it to the shelter because they said it wasn't their cat. They cared for it and they thought it was better off in the shelter. Um, this was a study by Pauline Bennett's group in Victoria and they surveyed Victorian households. 22% said they were feeding a cat they didn't perceive their own was their own and it wasn't the neighbours. And 33% owned a cat. Again, um, research by Sarah Zito, uh, it was an online questionnaire, 9% of respondents uh, fed a cat daily they didn't perceive they owned. Now, some of those cats are microchipped, some of them are de-sexed, but they don't perceive ownership. And if you look at the, if you calculate it out and, and you know, knowing that internet surveys are mostly females and you know, males aren't represented, it's probably about one in 15 to 20 people in our cities feed cats daily that they don't, and it's often more than one cat, that they don't perceive they own. So what are we going to do? Well, you know, we can keep doing what we're doing. We can accept strays from the public and provide traps for those people that um, are concerned about cats and want to bring them, get them off their property or where they are. And we've calculated, as I mentioned this morning, we're killing about 5% of the urban stray cat population annually. It's been shown that it stimulates reproduction, increases survival of juveniles, ensuring a new crop of kittens and cats to be harvested um, several months later, if not next year. And in fact, a hallmark study from Tasmania where um, they really mirrored what rangers would be going or national park rangers would be going into forests, um, going in periodically, trapping cats and killing them. And they removed 30% of the cat population in two two treatment areas and they had two treatment areas where they didn't do any trapping. And it increased cat numbers in the areas they trapped and killed by two to three times and it happened quickly. And that was largely immigration into the area of less dominant animals after they removed the more dominant ones. And you get increased survival of the juveniles. So essentially what we're doing at the moment, as I mentioned this morning, is equivalent to sustainably farming cats. And Einstein, his famous quote about insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting cat numbers to decrease. So we can kill them. And as I mentioned, Miller, um, who did this very sophisticated modelling paper, said you need to kill 30 to 50% every six months for at least 10 years to effectively control and not eliminate cats in open populations. So in fact, we need to kill at least 15 times more cats than we're killing currently in our shelters and pounds. But is the community going to support it? They'll sabotage it. They certainly won't help in a large majority to help the council trap. So the council ha- has to go out there and to trap the whole colony is going to take them at least four to six uh, nights per cat to get all those last stragglers. It's going to cost them heaps of money. Um, the Brisbane City Council spends a quarter of a million dollars with a target of 1,000 cats a year. Um, and so that's $250 per cat for a trapper and their car and their on costs. And that's without, hold, that, that's without any minimum holding period. And of course, uh, if we want to 
trap 30 to 50 per cent every six months in our urban areas, we're going to get a lot more complaints uh, coming to government. And again, who's going to pay for it? Um, in the Brisbane City Council, I uh, calculated that it's going to cost them $24 million in the first year. And in fact, if you want to remove cats from Australia, uh, it's going to cost you, and you can't remove cats, but if you really want to get a decrease in number, we have to spend 20 to 30% of our GDP every year for the next 10 years. So uh, let's forget about hospitals, schools and all of those things and let's go for a pile of dead cats. Well, we can put feeding bans and Brisbane City Council is uh, enacting some of those. Um, but who's going to police it? Just remember the 60,000 people in Brisbane feeding cats daily and they're going to have to put on a hell of a lot of officers to police it. And in fact, there's been no city in the world where a feeding ban succeeded in eliminating cats because you just can't ban people from caring. And we just don't have enough officers. And is that the best use of their time, to be catching predominantly women feeding cats around sunrise and sunset? And the, yeah, anyway, I won't go into that tonight. <laughs> um, oh, we can do trap, neuter and return, where we desex them, adopt them if we can, um, and return those that are healthy. And we vaccinate them, we worm them, if we flea control them, we microchip and we ear tip them. And you can see, um, if you didn't know what ear tipping is, oh, I can use the pointer here. See this cat here? Um, and I do recommend that uh, for their safety. So does it work? Because what we hear uh, with these major organisations that don't support it um, is that it doesn't work. So the first thing to realise is for it to work, it has to be targeted. You can't use a shotgun approach. Um, and this is Tampa, Florida, and they decided to target the postcode here um, that had the highest cat intake into the pound. Had a population, human population of 44,000 people, and they dissected about 3,000 cats over a two-year period. They paid a full-time trapper who was supported by volunteers. They did a street-by-street -street approach. They used a, a, a car that was wrapped, it had signs on it, free, de, free trap neuter um, works and there were free desexing signs. And they went from street to street, putting these signs up, uh, putting flyers in people's post boxes, um, free desexing. And so on the left, um, you can see, yes, it is your left, um, the uh, postcode uh, where they targeted, and the uh, other graph on the other side is um, the, the rest of the, that Tampa city. And you can see uh, the intake here is 600, or, uh, close to 700 cats and about 1,600 cats, 16,000 16, cats in the rest of the, the city. And over a period of 2009 to 2013, the intake in the area where they did trap, neuter and return dropped by 47%, and the intake in the control areas dropped by 17%. The classic area 
is Gainesville, Florida, and that's where Julie Levy's study was done, and she's a great scientist. And so in the target area, again, they um, picked a, a, a postcode that was overrepresented by intake into the shelter, and they did TNR of just over 2,000 cats in a two-year period. They adopted sociable um, cats and kittens, and so they were desexing 60 cats per 1,000 head of people. And that represented about 54% of the cat population. Now, the rest of the area of Gainesville, they had low-level trap, neuter and return programs going that were desexing about eight cats per 1,000 residents. And in this graph here, you can see... Um, if you look at the... So this is intake per 1,000 residents on this axis here, the vertical axis here. And this dotted line is the number of desexings that were happening. And you can see here in this baseline year how rapidly they increased. The dark black line is intake into the shelter and the um, grey line is euthanasia. And you can see how quickly, and they desexed in this year one and year two, so over a two-year period, how quickly intake and euthanasia dropped with the number being desexed. And you can see here, um, with the uh, it was seven, it was uh, intake was reduced by 33%, and it was three and a half times higher in the non-target area. Remember, they're still desexing eight cats per thousand residents in this area, um, and euthanasia was 17 times higher um, in the non-target area. So pretty impressive figures, and it happens quickly. And this one um, I quite like because it's uh, similar to an area that we want to do a uh, trial research project in Australia. So the Humane Society partnered with the Council Pound and they introduced TNR to replace euthanasia as the standard policy for healthy, unowned, poorly socialised cats. And the population was 18,000. They desexed 580 cats over just a one-year period. The animal control officers, officers trapped half the cats. The rest were by residents. And the, the blue line shows, or the, the purple line shows, why they started it. Because the blue line is intake, and the red line, or the red bars, are euthanasia and they were just steadily increasing over time. And they said, enough is enough. So um, the blue line is intake beforehand, and they, this is where they desexed the cats, and you can see that they got a 34% drop in intake and a 51% drop in euthanasia the next year. It happens fast if you do really good targeted TNR. And this is, one, this is one of her early studies where they did TNR, whoa, TNR um, in, on the Gainesville, Florida campus. And this just keeps on changing. And just have a look at the shape of that graph and then have a look at the shape of this next one because um, we keep hearing in Australia there's no evidence that it works. And... Professor Helen Swarbrick's here 
Um, and this was a hallmark study from the University of New South Wales uh, campus. And cat-related complaints were in the top three complaints coming to properties and facilities, along with parking complaints. So they decided to do something about it and hired a pest control company. And the pest control company came in. Um, they reduced the cat... They removed 13 cats, um, charged the university... I, I think it's rumoured 40,000 over four months... Um, but now complaints have increased because staff are complaining that the cats are being tracked by a, a pest control company and they started to go down to the pound and retrieve some of these cats. And the university could see this was a very good bo business model for the pest control company and they could be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars every year at the university for not a lot of gain. Um, and so the, you know, some of the um, staff, dedicated staff, and, and uh, Professor Helen Swarbrick was one of them, approached the university and convinced them to try trap, neuter and return. And universities are very conscious of money um, and they thought that it might save them some money, I think. Um, I'm not sure they were so concerned about welfare. Uh, and they actually paid for the desexing. And you can see how that line's dropped, very similar to what happened on the University of Florida. Last year, when they reported to the university executive, they had 18 mostly elderly cats. I understand there's now 15 elderly cats there. Um, the university's very happy. It doesn't cost them money. And there's no complaints. I um, presented this this morning, um, which has now been published, where we asked people who are doing trap, neuter and return in Australia, and uh, they described the colonies. It was an online survey. Median colony size when they started was 12. Current number of cats was seven. The reporting time was two years. They adopted three kittens on cats per colony. And the initial total number of cats they reported on was 515, and at the time they reported, which again, it was about two and a half years um, in this analysis, um, was 344 cats. And you have to really, you have to kill about 50% of the population every six months to get that sort of decrease from culling over a two-year period. And they largely paid for it rather than government. They fed them, they vaccinated, they microchipped them. But the important thing to realise, if TNR is going to work, it has to be targeted. And this is a slide from Brian Cordes, who's a really smart and experienced guy. He's now in Hawaii. And he says that if you've got um, 100 cats in three postcodes and you've only got money for 20 spay neuters, do you just let people bring the cats in and offer spay free spay neuters for colonies, um, colony cats. Um, and if you look at that diagram there, you can imagine that the cats that are not desexed in those colonies where you're just um, doing a scattergun approach, they can easily reproduce to cover the, the decrease in kittens being produced by the ones that are desexed. Or you can spend your money and you can um, target the whole colony. But if there's lots of colonies around, unless you really um, intensively manage those existing colonies and make sure you catch every immigrant cat, um, that's not the most effective use of your money 
and you better to start off in one postcode that is a problem. They're often lower socioeconomic areas, you know, government housing, factories, that sort of thing. Um, and target that whole postcode and then move out from there. Because if you target the area around Ralph's, where Ralph's cafe diners are, um, but you've got all the houses round about, they will be uh, repopulating fairly quickly. So you have to move, you have to spread out from there and deal with the problem areas. But of course, in Australia, there's lots of objections to TNR. It's a grey area of legality um, because you could define... Uh, so there's two areas of law that generally cover it. It's one about welfare laws and that it could be um, construed as abandonment. I think you could fight that pretty well in court given they're fed every day, they're microchip vaccinated, etc. Um, but the other issue is they are regarded as pest species and it does depend on the state. Um, and in Queensland... Cats are only owned or feral. So every stray cat's feral. It's subject to the legislation, and it depends on the council how stringently they interpret that. But in Queensland, they are prosecuting people because you're not allowed to feed them, you're not allowed to remove them for adoption, and you're not allowed to re release them. And they have actually prosecuted people who have um, admitted to or pleaded guilty to removing kittens for adoption. As I mentioned, the AVA policy doesn't support it. Um, the official RSPCA doesn't, uh, policy doesn't support it, but I think that that will change. And the AVA do document says um, one of the reasons they don't support it is it's not been shown to be effective under Australian conditions. The other concern that people raise is, well, what about that cat that you put back? it might get hit by a car sometime in the future and there's no one there to help it. Well, we're not helping the ones that are out there now, so, um, and the fact that they're desexed, they will roam less. But there's been quite a bit of work done on this. Um, in North America, uh, they've shown that less than 1% of free-living cats um, that are trapped in these programs are too unhealthy to return. And they've shown that the incidence of infectious disease in free-living cats is similar or less than in pet cats, and that's one of the concerns. These cats will transmit disease to owned cats. Well, the incidence is in the same or less in the owned cat population, or the of disease is actually the same or more in the owned cat population. And generally, it's been shown that neutering and return to sites associated with an improvement in body condition, health and longevity, and at least no deterioration. And this was work that I mentioned this morning by um, Anya Dale, uh, and she found that the majority of neutered free-living cats in managed colonies or unmanaged colonies are healthy, and that cats in managed colonies were not significantly different from owned cats. And cats in unmanaged colonies were leaner than pet cats or managed colony cats, but only 4% were emaciated compared to 2% of owned cats. And just remember, about 60% of owned cats are overweight or obese. So why are we killing them? Why don't we return them? We've heard a lot in the last couple of days that cats are more likely um, 
well, uh, cats are more likely to disappear from a household than dogs. 66% of lost cats are found because they return home. Only 7% of lost cats are found via a call or visit to a shelter. And cats are 13 times more likely to return by non-shelter than shelter means. And um, our research has shown that only 4.5% of cats are reclaimed from shelters and pounds in Australia. And the study I presented this morning that lost cats, half of them, um, were actually found within 50 metres of uh, where they lived and 75% within 500 metres. But then there's the elephant in the room, the wildlife. What if that cat that's released will kill a bird? Well, you know, killing less wildlife requires that we have less cats out there. So we can have less cats if we either kill approximately 40% every six months in a city of one million, spend $24 million in the first year, or we can do desex, adopt and return home. So which way do you want to go to protect wildlife? But in fact, um, there's no study in urban Australia that demonstrates a negative effect of cats on native wildlife populations. And a Perth study investigated species diversity across three bushland sites. And, in, and for more than 10 years in each one of those sites, um, the cats either were totally banned, it was ecologically friendly, you couldn't have a cat, or in another postcode, they required the cats to be in overnight and to wear a bell and the other postcode, you could do with what you liked with the cat. And what did they find? The numbers of the most abundant medium-sized mammals, mammals were similar across all sites, and they were brush-tailed possums and southern brown bandicoots. And there was a little small hoppy thing, an antichinus, and those are really susceptible to cat predation. Um, cats are very uh, potent at that's, that's what they're most adapted to killing, little hoppy things. And they found, they were, they were mostly found at the site where you could do what you liked with your cat. But the vegetation was a bit denser there and they concluded that it was not cats, that it was density of vegetation. Um, another one um, in Sydney bushland uh, that looked at predation of uh, birds and uh, uh, nests, and so this was metropolitan bushland, and they actually put in artificial birds' nests, and they must have looked pretty real because they were all attacked by other avian predators. Ten of them were attacked by black rats. Ringtail possums and antichinus attacked a few. No nests were attacked by cats, and even better, there was le less nest predation the more cats there were. And they concluded that it was probably the cats were controlling the black rats. Um, and this study uh, where we're asking uh, owners of dogs and cats what they've observed their uh, pet to catch over a, a six-month period, and surprise, surprise, what do cats catch? What we brought them to Australia for originally, to kill mice, followed by rats, followed by small lizards and common birds, which is consistent with other studies. 
Um, and that's consistent with Macquarie Island, uh, where cats had a positive effect um, because they were controlling the rabbit population. And once they took the, rabbit, the cats out, the rabbit population exploded and it caused more severe damage to the environment. And they had to go and take out the rabbits as well. And bless their heart, the Brisbane City Council thought that they would convince taxpayers how well they were spending their $250,000 catching 1,000 feral cats where people were feeding them. And so they sent them off for stomach contents, and this was in their newsletter, that they said that, unfortunately, the results from the examination of the stomach contents of feral cats provided little insight into the impact of cats on native wildlife only prey species consumed was the black rat. Bugger. And what people don't realise is that if you look at data on banding studies of birds, the average lifespan of most Australian birds is between two and four years. Some of the parrots live longer, the fairy penguins live longer, but most die. And you know, it's like the average lifespan of humans is about 80 years. And we don't live to 160 because we die of cancer and heart disease and all sorts of other things. Birds die of the same things but much earlier, and it's a different proportion of things that kill them. But maths was never my strong point. So if I use five years that they, they live for on average, it means 20% are dying every year. It's just the turnover. And it keeps the breeding stock healthy and uses the best genes. And it's part of survival of the fittest. And there's two studies, one from France and one from the UK, which showed that birds that were killed by cats were significantly less healthy than birds killed by flying, by birds um, killed by cars and flying into windows. And they concluded that cats are opportunist hunters and tend to remove the sick, the old, the fallen out of the nest. And in fact, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds in the UK came out with this statement and said, despite the large numbers of birds killed, there's no scientific evidence that predation by cats in gardens is having any impact on bird populations UK-wide. It's likely that most of the birds killed by cats would have died anyway from other causes before the next breeding season. So cats are unlikely to have a major impact on populations. So will the community support trap new in return? So um, in this study where we're asking people about what their dog and cat killed, we also asked them some que other questions. So it was a survey of 1,239 respondents. 70% said cats had a negative effect on wild... or they thought cats had a negative effect on wildlife in their area, compared to 24% who said they thought dogs had a negative effect on wildlife in their area. If you talk to conservationists, they'll say that dogs are equally, if not more, um, devastating on wildlife in urban areas. And I certainly know that my dogs have more effect on wildlife that comes into our backyard than our two cats do. So then we said to them, 
Overseas programs exist where stray suburban cats are captured, desexed, then returned to where they're captured. These programs have been shown to reduce the number of complaints about these cats and to reduce the numbers of stray cats and kittens put to sleep in shelters. Would you support a trial project like this in a specified area near you? 82% said yes. So although they're concerned about their impact on wildlife, and I would guess that everyone in this room cares for wildlife as well, but you don't want cats killed to protect wildlife, not when there's another way. And um, in Montana, they showed that uh, with trap, neuter and return, there was a 36% decline in cat intake an 87% decline in euthanasia, an 84% decline in cat-related complaints. And that's interesting because that really drops off quickly. Texas, a 90% decline in cat-related complaints with TNR. Kentucky, a 51% decline in the cat target area um, of intake and a 20% decline in the entire service area. So TNR decreases intake it decreases euthanasia, intake costs councils money, and in Australia we showed a 31% decline in colony size over 2.2 years. So my recommendation is that we change legislation, that we define feral cats as cats that have no, um, get no support from humans for food or shelter, and in a practical way of defining them, um, they're going to be cats that are further than three to five kilometres from the nearest human habitation. And that we remove uh, cats that are stray from the feral pest legislation. Because if we keep them under that feral pest legislation, we are never going to be able to manage them effectively and decrease their numbers. So, and then we need to also add into the legislation that TNR is allowed in urban areas. And if you actually look at the fine print, so when I looked at the fine print of the Brisbane of the Queensland uh, Land and Stock Movement Act and the Biosecurity Queensland, they actually say that you can release cats and you obviously have to feed them to catch them if they're part of a biological control program. And TNR is biological control, but we need it spelled out much much more clearly in the legislation. And I think that best practice guidelines need to be developed. And um, I'll say this once and I might say it again. Complaints kill cats. Complaints kill cats. So you need to do TNR really well to avoid complaints because that's when animal control officers will move in. And I would suggest that we do have a registry um, of colonies that is accessible by public um, authorities so they know where they are, but it's held by um, an organisation like the RSPCA, so freedom from information can't be used to find the location of the colonies and post those on internet. Um, that the carer responsible um, is registered uh, and provides their um, primary and secondary contact details, so this is a problem with the cats, um, they can be contacted quickly the location and address site to protect those cats so that we know that they're under TNR. 
and that there's annual reporting of cat numbers to know where there's issues. And I would encourage managed colonies, although um, if identified carers aren't available, and particularly for shelter neuter and return, where you're putting individual cats back, um, you can assume they do have a carer. Um, adoptable kittens and cats are removed initially to get a rapid reduction in colony size. 100% um, of the um, cats are desexed um, within six months, ideally within a week, and healthy cats that can't be adopted are returned to location. Cats are vaccinated and provided with parasite control at desexing, minor health treatment um, provided if indicated, they're microchipped, ear tipped. And what's really important is that you monitor those colonies, colonies so that immigrant cats that come in, and they will come in, um, are captured and desexed quickly or they're uh, adopted out. It's best if food is placed in containers away from public view. Uh, it just, you get less complaints. Um, uneaten food should be removed after 30 minutes because that helps to stop vermin. And if you're feeding those cats, cats learn really fast to come and eat food fast. And you see that as a, as a clinician involved in obesity research, I know that once the cats get down, you know, and they're on a weight loss, they can stuff that food in, you know, a few minutes. Cats learn really, really quickly, and most research cats are fed once a day, and if you try and keep them lean, which they don't like, they just scoff the food. So if you've got them all coming for that feeding time for the 30 minutes, you can monitor immigrant cats, you can monitor cats that are sick and then do something about them, and it stops vermin coming and complaints. Again, complaints kill cats. Appropriate, whether appropriate shelter provided and hidden from view. And this is important. It's listening to people who do have complaints. Um, but I guess uh, education material distributed so people do understand what you're doing, but also best practice in dispute resolution because you have to recognise people do have a right not to have cats on their property and if you don't respect that, then the complaints will continue. But if you work with them, um, and I um, haven't been involved personally with these cat deterrent devices, but um, I'm in contact with uh, a number of groups in North America that are doing very extensive TNR. They say the best cat deterrents are these multi-frequency that are motion detected, um, they're uh, solar powered, uh, if someone doesn't want a cat in their, back, in their garden, you put one in the front garden, one in the back garden, you can have one in a flower pot that you move around. Um, if the people own a cat and that's inside, then you face them away from the house, but they haven't had any complaints about them. Um, they will keep other wildlife away. You can't have not cats but have possums um, running across the, gr the ground. So they... Um, but they say that they're extremely uh, effective. They also have a strobe light that goes on uh, as well. Um, so at least it, people fit, and you know, providing them as a, a trial rental, but at least it gives people a feeling of control. Um, they may not want it. But, uh, well, they want the control, but they may not want a, a cat deterrent device, but at least you're offering something and you're listening. Um, so what are our alternatives? Well, we can keep doing what we're doing, farming cats and harvesting kittens. We can increase the killing by 15 times or more. 
We can ban feeding, we can wave a magic wand, or we can desex them, adopt them and return them home, which will decrease population size, decrease shelter and pound intake, decrease euthanasia, cat-related complaints and impact on staff. Now, I keep hearing, yes, but that cat might kill a bird. And what we need to be saying is without community cat programs, someone has to kill the cats and kittens. And the people that are sitting in the room here are often the people that have to kill the cats and kittens. And it's well known now there's a psychological cost to that. That fifth, this is Australian research. 50% of workers directly involved with euthanasia develop post-traumatic stress. Depression, substance abuse, high blood pressure, sleeplessness and suicide are all increased with that condition. And the staff turnover rate in shelters is proportional to euthanasia rate. So when I hear about, well, it might kill a bird, well, killing might kill a person. So someone has to kill them. Killing healthy animals damages people's lives and in some cases, killing animals kills people. And in fact, the suicide rate now for the animal rescue sector, which is what they call the sector in North America, has reached number one spot along with policemen and firemen. And Kate Hurley gave me this quote that she'd heard recently. Every day while I was cleaning cat cages, the euthanasia team would come through and euthanise the day's cats and pile them on a cart and wheel the pile out to the cooler. Every day when I saw that, I went out to the parking lot and threw up. But after the community cat program began, now we just tear up the euthanasia list and all the cats go to surgery. It's time. It's time. And I'd like to show you a video now, um, and I'm not sure how I get that up. It's a video that was made by Target Zero, uh, Humane Society USA, um, and the Million Cat Challenge. And it's not a professionally made video, and it's council staff. So they call them counties, and they're talking about trap, neuter, and return, and they're talking about diversion programs. Diversion programs are shelter, neuter, and return, where those cats that come in that you know, they're stray cats, you know you're not going to be able to adopt them out, and you desex them and put them straight back to where they were found. And it was, it's, it was still kind of hard, even after we opened up the whole shelter, because um, cats have always been a lot <laughs> in this area. So it's always, always had rooms full, especially in the summer. And I believe I was told at first that I might have 15 cats and I think I've never laughed so hard because I did not believe that that would ever happen.
been a lifesaver, not only for the animals. Um, what I want to convey is a, it's a lifesaver for us. Uh, I get emotional when I think about it because it's made such a difference in our lives. Um, especially personally, I feel like there's been a huge weight lifted. should get on board. Um, I think every county, every, you know, every state should be on board because it's amazing what it's done. And thank you so much from the bottom of my heart and all of my cats and here for everything you've done. Uh, in 2011, I had a seasoned vet tech walk into my office in tears. She had euthanized 42 kittens and she could not face another day, uh, another kitten season. Uh, luckily, we were able to sit down as a team. Um, I couldn't help but feel like I had failed them in some way. 85% of our kittens are coming from outdoor sources. So why weren't we going after and doing some type of population control in the community. Thus, community cat diversion and TNR are the answer. See, I encourage you, please, just do it. I promise, the ceiling won't fall on your head. Um, we were extremely worried about our community uh, backlash because of changes in the services we were providing. But honestly, our animal control officers were already out there trapping, uh, and euthanasia doesn't work. So we started retraining, rethinking about how we were doing things. Uh, our animal control officers became active in TNR as a solution for our community cat complaints, uh, and it works. Uh, one location we had uh, been going to uh, for 18 years, uh, the gentleman complained that we had removed 46 cats from his property while all of a sudden a change. Hello, we've been coming there all these years and removed 46 cats and we still don't have an answer. So we went to that location, uh, our officers actively engaged a caretaker in the area, TNR'd the location. It took care of nuisance cat complaints and we haven't had any complaints in that area. The complainant is extremely happy with the results. Uh, the redirection of our efforts uh, then got to uh, allowed us to free up our shelter staff uh, to take care of the animals in the facility, and it's working. We went from a 25% live release rate to 94% last month. The rates are going down in all of the shelters. Uh, well, one particular shelter that was a little resistant uh, went from 48% to 83% in a matter of months. So it doesn't take years. Uh, it can be done in months. So I'm encouraging you, uh, just do it. Uh, that was a piece of advice that was given to me and I was extremely you know, apprehensive. Uh, because that wasn't the way I was taught to do things. Uh, the truth of the matter is that uh, after removing tens of thousands of cats from this community over the last decade, it hasn't worked. It didn't work until we instituted TNR and community cat diversion. So I encourage you, just do it. Since the start of the TNR program, we've actually decreased 70% in how many litters we've taken in. 
This has allowed us to really focus on cats that are from houses and owner surrenders and cats that need to go to a home versus cats that are used to living outside and can fend for themselves. The open cages for the winter has been something that we've never seen before. It's been eye-opening just how much the TNR program was needed in our area. Here last year, before our TNR program was in full swing, we had between 150 and 170 cats in the building at any one time. And we were euthanizing lots of cats because we were holding them and then they were getting sick and then we could not adopt them out. Since our TNR program has taken hold, we have very few cats and cat adoptions. We used to have five different rooms to hold cats and now we only have two. And there was some fear that by reducing kennel space, we were going to have a higher euthanasia rate for our cats. And that has been the exact opposite. We are almost no kill for cats now, reaching very close to a 90% live release rate. And the cats in our care are getting more attention that they need. There's a shortage of adoptable cats right now in the city of El Paso. Decreasing the population of our cats in the building uh, has significantly decreased our staff's stress load and it's allowed us to able to focus more on the dog population and give them the care that they need. So not only are we saving more cats, and our live release rate is great for the cats, but our live release rate is going up for the dogs as well. ...visited us and said, would you like to do a community cats project? And they said some things that seemed a little crazy at the time, like they told us that our cat admission rates could drop by as much as 20%, they said we'd hit no kill for cats, and they showed us this video of another shelter that had empty cat kennels in the middle of kitten season. And it all seemed kind of crazy, but we really wanted to try it, and we did, and it has all come true. Our cat admission rates have dropped by nearly 30%, from 8,000 cats to about 5,000. Our cat save rate went from about 44% to nearly 90. And then if you look behind me, we have empty kennels here and are facing a little bit of a cat and kitten shortage. It changed our shelter in ways we never expected and has just helped us save thousands of lives. And we just wanted to let you see and know how well the community cat program has been working for us. Since 2015, we have not had to put down one adult cat or any cat, really, for space of any kind. So the community cat program can make a major difference in your program, and I hope that you get the same results that we've gotten with our community cat program. Um, go to the Australian Pet Welfare Foundation, and there's a um, one of the tabs there on the um, homepage is Nine Ways to Save Lives. The last tab is Community Cat Programs. There's a whole lot of resources there. There's books and things. And that video is there too. That finishes up uh, Dr Jackie Rand um, from the Australian Pet Welfare Foundation and U University of Queensland's presentation on effective and humane cat management strategies, encouraging the adoption of trap, neuter, return and community cat programs. It was at the 7th National Getting to Zero Summit held on the Gold Coast in September 2017. So thank you very much, Dr. Jackie Rand, and thank you to the Getting to Zero Summit. And of course, the Australian Pet Welfare Foundation.
that completes the program for today. If you'd like to contact us, please do so on info at freedomofspecies.org. If you've missed today's show, uh, we will be putting the podcast on the Freedom of Species webpage and also the 3CR webpage. They also go on to iTunes. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week. 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories, from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is ours. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.